I want you to imagine for a moment you're in front of your house, talking on your cell phone. Imagine you're talking to a friend or someone from work, or better yet, your mom. You're doing nothing wrong. In fact, you're hardly doing anything at all. You're just on your front porch, on your phone, talking to your mom. Now imagine a car pulls up. The men inside don't identify themselves, but they ask, Do you live here? Yes, you tell them, and they drive away. But only for a moment. Because almost immediately, they stop, back their car up, and again demand, Is this where you live? How do you respond? What do you say? What do you do? I ask, because this is the exact scenario that happened to Chase House, a young man living in Cleveland, Ohio. On the evening of July 28, 2016, Chase, who was only 20 at the time, was standing on his front porch, talking on the phone to his mom. He had his keys and was about to unlock the front door. That's when an unmarked car pulled up and a man in the front passenger seat asked Chase if he lived there. The man was white, Chase is black. Yes, this is my house, Chase told him. The car then slowly started to drive away, but it didn't get very far before it backed up and the man again demanded to know if Chase lived there. Yes, Chase said, annoyed. This is my home. What the fuck? At that, the man bolted out of the car, shouting, You have a smart mouth and a bad attitude. Then two other men got out of the car, and soon all three were confronting Chase. I live here. I live here, Chase told them. But they didn't listen. In fact, Chase had an ID in his pocket proving this was his home. But the men never looked at it. They never even asked for it. Instead, they told Chase to put his hands behind his back because he was going to jail. Chase, still on the phone with his mother, protested. You have no right. That's when the three men tackled Chase, pinned him to the ground, and then finally identified themselves as police officers. When Chase's mother arrived moments later, she saw three men on her porch, one straddling her son while he screamed, I live here, I live here. When Chase heard his mother's voice, he lifted his head and looked in her direction. One of the officers struck Chase twice in the back of his neck and slammed his face into the porch. The officers arrested Chase on his front porch, put him in jail, and then signed a complaint falsely charging him with assault and battery. A month later, a grand jury indicted Chase for two counts of assaulting a police officer, both felonies, and one count of obstructing official business, a misdemeanor. His bond was set at $1,000. But instead of accepting a plea deal, Chase fought back. He filed a citizen complaint form with the city of Cleveland, stating that, quote, Cleveland police came onto my property, threw me to the floor, and commenced striking me. Three weeks later, the state dismissed all the charges against Chase. It was a small incident. At the time, it didn't make the papers. No one took to the street demanding justice for Chase House. In fact, in many ways, that's the whole point of this story. 
It was another daily indignity in a long history of daily indignities suffered by a black man at the hands of police. Which is why Shea's house decided to sue the officers who violated his rights, who arrested him for doing nothing other than talking on the phone in front of his house, to his mother no less. But the officers, who never identified themselves, who smashed his head against the porch, who filed a false report claiming Chase assaulted them, then moved for the case to be dismissed because of qualified immunity. And the Sixth Circuit Court agreed. As you may know by now, there had to be clearly established law that the officer's conduct in this case was unlawful. So like all the other cases we've told you about in this series, Muhammad Mahiman, James King, and Kari Illich, Chase Howes had to show there was a prior case with nearly identical facts where the court ruled the police officer had violated someone's Fourth Amendment rights. If he couldn't, then the police could claim qualified immunity and the case against them would have to be dismissed. And that's exactly what happened. It didn't matter whether the police had violated Chase's rights. The fact was irrelevant. Chase House, like so many other victims of police abuse, appealed, this time all the way to the Supreme Court. But the court denied cert, and the lower court's ruling stood. Chase House's case was dismissed because of qualified immunity, and the officers were never held accountable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Unaccountable with me, Aloe Black. And me, Ben Cohen. We're joined now by sociologist and Brookings Institution fellow, Rashawn Ray. Rashawn, we've been doing this podcast for a while now, so I'd like to do a quick recap. Basically, in the fight for qualified immunity, we know that there is legislation that has been written by the House of Representatives in Congress to end qualified immunity. It's part of the Justice and Policing Act, also known as the George Floyd Act. And that piece of legislation is now in the hands of the Senate. And so far has not moved from the hands of the Senate because there is a sticking point, And that sticking point happens to be qualified immunity for the Republicans. They don't want to end it. Um, I understand that there's some negotiation happening right now. But, you know, I have a question for you. How did we get here? Yeah, well, thank you all for having me on. I'm really excited about this important conversation. When I think about qualified immunity and how we got here, uh, I mean, being honest about it, we got here because every year in the United States, over 1,000 people are killed by law enforcement. And that is about one every eight hours. And we also know that Black people are disproportionately more likely to be killed by law enforcement. In fact, one of the key stats that I throw out that I think is the crutch of this is that Black people are 3.5 times more likely than whites to be killed by police when they're not attacking or have a weapon. That's the group we're talking about. I mean, we could obviously talk about what I call trickle down policing because these police killings are simply the tip of the iceberg. But we know that black people are disproportionately more likely to be stopped, more likely to be searched, more likely to be frisked, and then more likely to have force used upon them. Those are the key problems. That's how we got here. So George Floyd, of course, spilled over onto the streets for over nine minutes where everyone saw it. But I think for black people, 
as as well as for white allies and other people who have been paying attention to this, they said, wow, this is emblematic of all of the other outcomes that we oftentimes see in policing. And a lot of people, including myself, think that uh, repealing qualified immunity is a pathway to address these racial disparities. Right. I certainly feel like it's a pathway to address racial disparities. I feel as though it's time that we end it. You know, you're a fellow at the Brookings Institute, and you wrote that from 2015 to 2019, more than $2 billion, mostly taxpayer money, was used on civilian payouts for police misconduct. And that was in only the 20 largest police departments in the United States. That's just astonishing. I mean, it is. I mean, it's so much money. And and what's fascinating about that process is how many people don't know that that, that it exists like that. And, and you noted kind of the, the origins of qualified immunity. Historians have definitely said that that's the case. And, and let, let's think about that for a minute. It makes sense. See, what people don't realize about law enforcement in the United States is let's go back to pre-colonial times. Let's go back to slavery. Law enforcement outlasted slavery. Law enforcement outlasted Jim Crow and segregation. And now all of a sudden we continue to have law enforcement in a very similar form to what it was. So when we look at the 60s, part of what was happening, it's very similar to what's happening now, is that the types of bad behaviors that people were engaging in in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, it didn't all of a sudden with the Civil Rights Act, we didn't all of a sudden replace police officers. They were the same people in 1966 as they were in 1964 and 1965. And what they were worried about is that their bad behavior was going to catch up to them. So they started to have to figure out court doctrines to protect them from the type of brutality that they were causing. And not just them, but other government officials, too, who were engaged in various types of corruption and then using taxpayer money to pay for that. And as astonishing as that $2 billion is, and in this case, we're talking about George Floyd, $27 million. William Green in Prince George's County, $20 million. Breonna Taylor, $12 million in Louisville. Corinne Gaines in Baltimore, $32 to $38 million, depending on whether or not you just think about her son or her entire family. When you think about $2 billion, those amounts of monies that I just mentioned are pennies in the bucket compared to the amount of money that's being spent. And as you noted, we're only talking about 20 police agencies when there are over 18,000 of them. So there's actually more money being spent on these civilian payouts in suburban and rural communities, oftentimes communities that do not have the money at all to pay for it. And as I've written about, we could go from Michigan to Tennessee to California to these small areas that have literally been bankrupt. There have been, been small municipalities, cities even, where they have lost their school systems Because they had to pay for police brutality settlements like that is just egregious. And part of what it is, is the people who are oftentimes brutalized are having their own money spent to pay them back for the wrong that was done to them. Like Breonna Taylor, who was a frontline essential worker as a healthcare worker who's essentially had her tax money used to pay her family for the fact that police came up in her house and killed her. Wow. Um, You were mentioning some of the budgets that come from the municipalities. In Chicago, the city only budgeted 20 million for police misconduct settlements. Can you can you tell me what happened with that? Yeah, I mean, Chicago is one of the most egregious cases, similar similar to Baltimore. I mean, these are two of the most corrupt police departments. If we look at the most one of the most recent 
fraternal order of police presidents in the city of Chicago. He has 50 misconduct complaints by himself, by himself. This is the person who's running the FOP. So th this is where we're starting from. Right. So part of what happened in Chicago when Rahm Emanuel was was mayor is he said, wow, OK, we're spending millions of dollars on police settlements. And of course, Chicago and, and, and NYPD, New York City, these are pretty much two of the largest police agencies. So what he started doing was he said, you know, we need to start appropriating money. So he started literally putting in the budget money for police brutality to try to preempt the settlements that were going to come down. But fascinatingly and unfortunately, it wasn't enough. And they didn't have enough money in the budget. So they started taking out what are called police brutality bonds, meaning someone could purchase these bonds on the open market, charge residents of Chicago a very high percentage in fee so that they can cover these police misconduct settlements. All the while, a majority of the officers continue to work. Because again, when we talk about these police killings, like Laquan McDonald is one of the, the, the big ones that people know. And then of course, more recently, Adam Toledo, who was the teenager, the Latino teenager who was killed um, after running from the police, seemed to drop something, turned around, seemed to not have anything in his hands at that time. There's going to be a settlement from that, that Chicago residents are going to have to pay. But here goes the kicker as well. There are so many incidents that cost the city 250,000, 500,000, 100,000 that people never hear about, that I read about every single day that is costing people money. So here we have in Chicago where not only did they appropriate money for brutality, they still didn't have enough and took out these bonds that is now costing the residents of Chicago even more money. Wow. So this is this is really an issue about economics. And if the citizens of a municipality recognize that their taxpayer dollars are going to police misconduct and in some cases being stripped from their school system, uh, I think they would really stand up and want to have something change. I think so, too. And I think a majority of Americans have spoken on this. So part of what we did, there was a report that came out of out of Cato showing that over 60 percent of Americans want qualified immunity gone, including a large percentage of Republicans, about 40 percent of them. Now, of course, we know over the past year there has been a, a slight narrative change, particularly when we look at um, the way that media is just polarized. But when people would just ask if they think their money should be used for these settlements, do they think their officers should be ameliorated from any sort of financial culpability? People say, no, they think that officers should be held accountable dealing with qualified immunity in the way that New York City, the way that the state of Colorado, the way that the state of New Mexico has done. But I think particularly Colorado, that Colorado model is what we should see replicated across the country. Absolutely. I had a conversation with a police chief in Castle Rock, Colorado, the day before the governor ended qualified immunity. And he had mentioned that he thought police would not sign up for the job if they felt that their income or their house or their money was threatened by their actions. And then I called him a year later to see how things went. And he said, nothing's changed. It's the police are still signing up for the job and they're still doing their work. So, you know, his theory was not proven by by the scenario that he's living every day. That's exactly right. I mean, look, there is very little merit 
that police officers are going to leave their jobs when these things change. Instead, officers who have oftentimes engaged in bad behavior and realize that they might be held accountable, those are the ones who worry. The good cops, like some of the ones in my family who I've grew up around, they don't worry as much about those changes necessarily. And in fact, many of the officers who I work with want to see changes. They realize that changes need to be made. And for too long, we've been just scraping the barrel with how we think about reform. And instead, we need to start thinking about reimagining and transforming policing, rebuilding law enforcement. And so when we look at Colorado, not only did they repeal qualified immunity, what they also did was they set it up where officers will be responsible for up to $25,000 of the settlement, essentially trying to suggest to officers, maybe you think about insurance policies, which a lot of officers have done. And that's been one of my main recommendations. We, we repeal qualified immunity. We set up police department insurance policies and let officers have liability insurance to be able to cover this. So it's not about them putting up their house or their savings, because in the grand scheme, they don't have enough money to cover these settlements. And when we think about a George Floyd settlement, like 27 million or even 12 million million dollars for Breonna Taylor, even 5 million or 1 million, they don't have enough money to cover that. And so that would essentially just end up in civil court and would just stay that way and continue to be litigated. That doesn't help anyone. But insurance policies are things that are put in place for these situations. And similar to driving a car, similar to having a private practice, if you're a lawyer or a physician, similar to owning a company, part of what happens is when you pay out these settlements, if you pay out enough of them, what is the insurance company going to say? We can no longer insure you. And that's actually happened. That becomes the exception that proves the rule. When I did this research and I looked at these small municipalities, these municipalities that have, it was like 10 officers, right? That's what most police departments look like. So they, the, the, the entire municipality becomes part of a risk pool with other small municipalities. So like if you look in East Tennessee, part of what they've done in East Tennessee is there were three officers, two of them beat up um, a motorist, a, a person who was riding a motorcycle. And the insurance company came back and said, you know, unless you all remove those officers, we will no longer insure you. And then there was an added level of pressure because that small municipality was part of a insurance risk pool with other small municipalities who said, we're not losing our insurance. Fire those officers. And that's exactly what they did. So it's a feedback loop to hold the department and officers accountable. So we can move away from qualified immunity, still protect officers from the financial burden of having to, to quote unquote, come out of pocket. But by using insurance, that is a pathway for accountability. The question I have is the campaign to end qualified immunity has been working in a bunch of different states. And what we hear from state legislators is that the municipalities don't want them to overturn qualified immunity. They're afraid that if cops are held accountable when they brutalize or murder people, that they're going to have to pay money. What do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I actually don't think that, there, that there'll be more cases at all. I mean, I think if they don't want more cases, then officers need to reduce the likelihood by which they brutalize people. And that that will decrease that. But, but what will happen with the money? And the Colorado model, the Denver model is, is just one. In an ideal world, what will happen? The police department 
as well as individual officers will have an insurance policy. Officers will have a malpractice liability insurance policy. It could be up to 100,000. It could be up to a million, say in places like Chicago and New York, where we know there have been problems. So some of this will be based on cost of living adjustments. But overall, they will have that malpractice uh, policy. The big policy is the police department has the policy. Okay, this is very similar to what happens in healthcare. When you go in for surgery, what happens? The hospital has a policy. And oftentimes the surgeons who are performing the surgery on you also have insurance. We have this same model in other aspects of life, like in healthcare and other things. So this would simply be replicating what already exists. Like creating insurance in healthcare didn't lead to more lawsuits, right? What it actually led to is physicians and hospitals thinking in more innovative ways on how to reduce the likelihood of lawsuits. That's what we want with policing. So part of what would happen is, Say there is a $20 million settlement. Well, the police department's insurance policy would pay a majority of that. The officers involved, their insurance policy, say if it's a million dollars and four officers are involved, say like with George Floyd, their policy would also be paid out of that. And then, of course, their premium uh, would increase based on that. And here it goes. When the premium increases, the insurance company will look at an officer like Derek Chauvin, not with George Floyd, but when he put his knee on the back of that teenager, which would have prevented George Floyd from dying, had the department addressed that. And that insurance company would have said, we can no longer insure you. He would have been done. He wouldn't have been able to get insurance. He wouldn't have even been on the force to train those two officers who watched him, who stood there and watched him kill George Floyd. He wouldn't have been there to put his knee on the back of George Floyd's neck. The police department, this is this is where it's key because Ben, to your question, what I find interesting about what municipalities are saying, qualified immunity could technically end today, and it actually would not change a lot of the way that some municipalities do anything because they're already paying it. Instead, what we want to ensure is that the liability does not simply solely fall on police officers because they have been trained in a police department, in a structure, in a culture that have allowed for them to do what they've done. And the structure has to be held accountable in addition to the individual actors. So part of what would happen is with these settlements, there are a few pathways in which it could go. The main way insurance, uh, police department has an insurance policy, individual officers has an insurance policy. As the premium goes up, the municipality has to tell the police department, we are not going to simply increase your budget to cover the increased cost. Instead, you need to work within your budget and figure it out. That is where another level of accountability will come from. Okay, so in the absence of an insurance answer or solution, would abolishing qualified immunity just make things worse for municipalities if they're the ones paying things out. I think that was the crux of, of Ben's question. Wouldn't it just bankrupt the cities? Well, I think that's that's already currently happening. So there are already a lot of cities that have essentially went bankrupt, who, again, the, these places that don't get talked about in the news, these small places where they've had to close their school system, they've had to close their police department, they've had to stop providing certain types of social services to people who need them. That is the current model. And it's very clear that's not working. So part of what we have to do, and I, and I think that's part of the leveling up, is that when 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 people hear it, they're like, okay, I can see how this can get bad for cities, not realizing it's already bad for cities. Let me give you another example in Nebraska. There were a group of people 
slightly different example, but it, it proves the rule in a very good way. Group of people were accused of a murder. Uh, they ended up uh, not doing it. They spent a lot of time in prison. Of course, they sued. They got a large settlement in this small town. Well, what happened? Well, what happened is that the town did not have the money to pay them. So the town increased property taxes for everybody who lived there to the maximum amount of money to pay these people twice a year, just like we do our property taxes. Most people pay their property taxes twice a year, comes out of our escrow account to pay these people who have been wrongfully accused of murder. This is the same thing that happens with law enforcement when we have these large settlements. Property taxes increases in addition to school systems closing. People don't get the social services they need. That's the current model. The only thing that protects against that really is insurance. It's kind of like driving a car without insurance. Why do they want people to have insurance? Because it protects against the likelihood that these incidents are going to happen and people not have the money. And I think that's the key thing, too. There, there are accidents that happen as well. I mean, look, studying policing, there are a lot of incidents that at times a person didn't mean to do it, but it happened. Right. We're not talking about always the egregious incidents like George Floyd or, or like what, you know, former officer Slager did with Walter Scott in South Carolina. We're talking about somebody has a vehicle accident. The point is, is that they weren't trying to kill them at that point in time. Insurance is what actually provides those protections, similar to a person driving a vehicle, similar to a person having surgery in the hospital where surgeons at times might accidentally remove the wrong organ. They might actually do, you know, make a miscalculation and someone's heart rate drops and it doesn't recover. These things happen and insurances is oftentimes what helps people to have a form of financial protection. And, and so really the insurance model is in the best interest of police officers at this point um, instead of other models that people think about. Have Republicans seem to be open to the concept of insurance? What is their proposal for qualified immunity reform? I don't really think they have one at this point. I think what Republicans are trying to do, and of course, through Senator Tim Scott, they're trying to figure out the viability and the receptiveness of abolishing qualified immunity. And uh, what I think is happening right now, and in some of the conversations I've been in with some of the people who've been involved from Congresswoman Karen Bass to, to Senator Cory Booker, is that what Republicans are trying to do now, they're trying to find 10 people, 10 Republicans who are going to fall on the sword here. The 10 Republicans who are least likely to lose a reelection if they vote against keeping qualified immunity. Right. So so I think that is where Republicans are right now. It's very clear, even though Tim Scott is off is authoring this or really shepherding it. I wouldn't call it authoring it. Karen Bass gets, gets most of the credit for that. But in South Carolina, he can't do that. That's the reason why he came out saying what he did after uh, Biden's congressional address, that systemic racism doesn't exist because he knows he's a senator in South Carolina. And so when we look at this, I think those 10 senators are the ones that are going to have to do something about it. Right. OK, so it's it's a game of politics at this point, even though they recognize that there is merit for crossing the aisle and finding common ground on ending qualified immunity. They just have created such a media storm around why ideologically Republicans shouldn't end qualified immunity that they can't even back out of their own corner. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You know, and and I think for Democrats, people who voted Democrat, um, the millions of people who came out to vote in the 2020 election, not just to vote for President Biden, but also 
in the state legislature and for senators and representatives. Part of what they're looking at, the, the, the Democratic Party, and they're saying, look, we gave you the White House. We helped you keep the House of Representatives. We helped you flip the Senate with the tiebreaker. Get this done. And, and interestingly, President Biden has said the same thing, and, and it hasn't happened. And I, I think what I find interesting, of course, being in Washington, D.C., doing a lot of things on the Hill, is that if the roles were reversed, Republicans would have already gotten what they wanted to get through. Like it would have already happened. And for some reason, Democrats, when they have the advantage, when they have the majority, they just can't figure it out the way the Republicans can. And and I think a lot of people know that. I think part of that is probably the strength of Mitch McConnell in the Senate that, I mean, he has tons of power and sway, um, even when he is, quote unquote, the minority leader at this point. Um, He knows that there are some really moderate Democrats who you know, like Manchin in West Virginia, who they, they worry about what will happen at this point. So, so I mean, look, Alo, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, it is political at this point in terms of what's happening. And that's unfortunate because when things get political, there are people who continue to lose their lives at the expense of political theater. And it's, it's just unfortunate that, that that's where we are in America. I'm assuming that municipalities already have some type of insurance if they need to pay for legal settlements against them. Is that true? Are they feeling like if they abolish qualified immunity, there will be more settlements against us and our insurance will go up? So so what's interesting about it is that smaller municipalities are the ones that typically have insurance because they're part of these risk pools. The large municipalities, the ones that we overwhelmingly talk about, they oftentimes don't have insurance. And oftentimes police are excluded from the insurance policies that they do have because they know that policing is going to cost so much money. So part of it is is really recognizing just how some people call it corrupt. Um, some people call it strategic, just the way that policing is set up financially, that not only do they get a large percentage of the general funds, take the city of Oakland, where over 40 percent of all tax money goes to law enforcement. Then on top of that, you have the civil settlements for police misconduct that are paid not out of the 40 percent, out of the rest of the money. So what you're saying, I'm sorry, you're saying in addition to the 40 percent of taxpayer dollars that go to law enforcement, when law enforcement are being sued for misconduct, the money that pays for settlements comes from a whole different bucket in addition to that 40 percent. That's exactly right. Oh, my goodness. And see that. And so so part of it is that is the norm. So let's take Chicago. About 39%, close to 40%. Minneapolis, about the same, around 38% of all of the tax money goes to law enforcement. That $27 million that was paid to George Floyd's family or is being paid to his family does not come from that 37, 38%. It comes from the other pool of money that could be spent on schools, could be spent on infrastructure, could be spent on work development. And this is the reason why we have to address this issue, because and this is the reason why I find it fascinating. Like like Republicans should definitely be behind this because it's just fiscally responsible (laughs) to do so. So back to this basic question, the setup of the funding is that police have their budget. These settlements do not come from that budget. That's why they don't care that much. It doesn't impact them. 
the way it's set up now. Like there's really no accountability for officers financially. And then, of course, we know criminally where Derek Chauvin made up less than 10 officers over the past 15 years who have been charged and convicted of murder. Now, most of them probably shouldn't. But see, here goes the kicker with that, too. This is why these federal databases are going to be so important. Every year, these thousand people are killed by police. Only about half of them, according to the FBI, are ruled as justifiable. Only about half. So now we have another 500. Well, what happens with them? They're actually ruled as unjustifiable. Does that mean that an officer is charged or convicted? No, it's just ruled as an unjustifiable homicide by police and nothing changes. The bottom line is that the system is so broken that as I talk about about these about good apples and bad apples, of course, we know bad apples come from rotten trees. But my research shows that these good apples become stained and poisoned by the rotten tree. They can't simply replace it or make it up. We have to change the system and addressing qualified immunity and the financial structure of policing is how we do it. It seems like the main thing we need is to get bad cops off the force. And when a cop gets sued and convicted, does he or she end up remaining on the force? Yeah, some, some, sometimes they do. And so the state of Maryland is has now become the leader in this space. They they were once far behind, and I've and I've played a a role in helping some of this legislation to move forward. I testified on the Maryland Police Accountability Act, which removed what's called the Law Enforcement Bill of Rights, called LIBOR. The way I think about LIBOR, it helps qualified immunity go on steroids. It helps officers to not have to make an initial statement. They can review all of the evidence before they provide any sort of written or verbal statement. They can talk to their FOP representative, get all of their affairs in order, including resigning from the department. For example, take the officer um, who killed Dante Wright. She had been on the force longer than he had been alive. And of course, this happened about 10 miles away from where George Floyd was killed. First thing she did was what? She resigned. Why did she do that? So she can keep her pension. She also resigned because she couldn't get she didn't get fired. So since she didn't get fired, let's say we fast forward. In this case, I think it'll be different. But in, in most cases, the officer ends up being found not guilty. And you know what? They just simply apply again and get their job back. That is the norm. So so, yes, these bad apples are a problem. But the problem is also the system that allows these bad apples to keep going. The officer who killed Tamir Rice is probably the most egregious and saddening example. So this officer had been in a, at another department before he was at Cleveland. He was deemed mentally unfit. Like, that's a very high bar. I, I tell you all, I, I sit on, on the California, it's, it's a, a task force that I'm part of that helps psychologists to have information to make decisions about which officers are deemed uh, mentally unfit or not. He was deemed mentally unfit. Like that... <laughs> I mean, you have to be pretty off the charts to be viewed that. You know what he did? He left that department, quit. Again, this was the thing. He wasn't fired. They actually wrote him a a letter of recommendation to go to another department. He goes to Cleveland and kills Tamir Rice in under three seconds, right? Do you think it stopped there? Not only was there nearly $6 million settlement for Tamir Rice's family, but guess what? That officer was um, not charged. And I think that killing was ruled as justified because they said that they thought Tamir Rice had a gun. Of course, it was a, a it was a toy. Do you think that stopped Timothy Loman? He has been hired at 
pretty, I think, two additional departments since then. And it is essentially a watchdog group that tracks him every time he tries to get another job. Because he hasn't been decertified. There's no federal measure for decertification or national measure for decertification. There's no state and there's no local uh, measure for decertification for many uh, states and municipalities. Especially here in California, we don't have a measure for decertification. Your discussion around insurance, the insurance, I imagine, would be tied to certification, correct? That's exactly right. I mean, if you can't get insurance, you shouldn't be able to be certified. So if you're uninsurable, your certification cannot be engaged, right? You cannot use your certification without insurance. And a a thought that I had, you said 2015 to 2019, more than $2 billion in taxpayer money. And that's just from about 20 of the largest police departments. So let's 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 imagine that's that's the total. Would an insurance company make more than two billion dollars from 2015 to 2019 if they were collecting from police officers and police departments? Great question. Yes, I, I'm pretty sure they would. And, and I think that that is part of the equation that doesn't get talked about. In, in policing, we collect deficit data. Think about it. We have all this data on bad things that have happened. We don't have data on good things. There are officers every single day who go to work, who have never fired their weapon, who help people do the things that have to get done, who don't brutalize force and don't use their power uh, to brutalize people. And they go home to communities and make those communities better. And if there was an insurance pool set up, they will be paying insurance, too. And you know what will start happening? If me and you are in the same department and you can't do stuff, I'm like, man, my insurance keeps going up because of you. And I'm not going to keep tolerating this. Like, But there is not an accountability mechanism where they hold those officers accountable, which is why we need whistleblower protections. This is one big thing we were pushing for in the state of Maryland, and it didn't get put in the legislation. And I, I think it's a it's a fail because what 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 I understand about the blue wall of silence The blue wall of silence doesn't simply exist because officers want to be loyal to it. It exists because there are consequences for trying to break it. And I know tons of officers who have blown the whistle on bad behavior. They're the ones who get stigmatized. They're the ones who get demoted. They're the ones who get pushed out. This is part of the staining that I'm talking about, how these good officers get stained. And they're the ones where after they've been on the force for 15 to 20 years, they should become the chief of police or at least a major or a captain. And instead, you know what happens? They are burned out and they quit. A lot of a lot of the good officers end up quitting. So so we need some protections for these. It's what I call a gap program. We need good apple protections for officers who want to blow the whistle, because in Prince George's County, one interesting thing just happened where this officer and it was a it was a very large corrupt story that actually highlights a lot of the things we're talking about. But the impetus behind what happened is there was an officer who used more force than the other officers thought he should have. They told their commanders, what do you think happened to them? Well, it was a group of black officers. One of the commanders then told the other white officers not to back them up when they needed it. So now let's fast forward a couple of weeks. And one of them is actually in an incident where someone is really trying to harm them or other people and they need other officers to come and they don't come. Like, why, why would you speak up in that situation? So it's a series of things that happen that that where we quali- starting with qualified immunity will really start to change the accountability structure that exists. 
And people really don't understand how deep that goes to impact the culture of policing. I want you to run the show, man. I want you in charge. <laughs> Rashawn for president. I'm there for you, baby. <laughs> well, look, thank you all. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been it's been great having this important conversation. I look forward to the next time. Oh, man. I could go on forever, Rashawn. Thank you so much. To join the campaign, go to holdcopsaccountable.org and stay up to date with the latest on the fight to abolish qualified immunity. And we also need you to call your senator now because the Senate is in negotiations on this bill as we speak. Tell them you want them to vote to abolish qualified immunity and hold the police accountable. Call the United States Capitol switchboard on 202-224-3121. Just tell them where you live and they'll connect you to your Senate office. We'll see you next time. This is a Crowd Network podcast presented by me, Aloe Black, and my co-host, Ben Cohen. It was produced by Luis Gwilliam and Michael Epstein and edited by Mickey Curling. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Crowd Network.